Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, the show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America, and we're recording today on Friday, September 25th, 2020. A week ago today, on the eve of Rosh Hashanah, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Associate Justice Supreme Court passed away. It's been the dominant story in American political life for the past week. Ginsburg's passing sets off something of a crisis in terms of the presidential election, which is now in less than 40 days, and major questions about American democracy, a constitutional crisis, etc. But Ginsburg's death also sets off a whole series of important conversations in the Jewish community about what it means for an American Jewish public figure to die publicly in America. Ginsburg's identity as an American, as a Jew, is all over the entirety of the coverage of her life, her funeral, uh, Rabbi Lauren Holtzblatt performing a incredibly traditional Jewish service in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol. Ginsburg lies in state, the first woman and the first Jew to do so in America. So it's an extraordinary moment to not only reflect on American democracy and its fragility right now, but also to reflect on the American Jewish experience and Ruth Bader Ginsburg in some ways as an exemplar of that. I'm joined today in conversation with, I think, the person who has most in the world to say about these topics and has been quite busy doing so this week. Dahlia Lithwick is an award-winning writer and journalist. She's a senior editor at Slate, as well as, as of this year now, I'm pleased to say, a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute. So first of all, Dahlia, I know you've also, you've been working really hard this week and you're also in mourning. So I'm really grateful that you're with us today. First of all, how are you holding up? So I don't know about you, but it really detonated my Rosh Hashanah, and I really needed Rosh Hashanah. So this was the first year, Yehuda, you will appreciate, that I made things with all of the, like, the dates and the pomegranates and the leeks. Like, I really did the whole thing because I said to my children, I'm going to cook for two days with all of these simanim because nothing can get worse. And I really feel bullish that we are going to enter a new year. And it's and my kids were like, nobody likes leaks, mom. <laughs> but I did all of it two days and then, you know, within an hour. So I think part of what's been hard for me through the Chagim and really hard barreling into Yom Kippur is that like this reset, the control alt delete that we just desperately need Jewishly to reflect and to think and to go inside was just gone. And I think the only other thing I would say is that when it was Chag and I was not doing TV and radio and then I suddenly was and I, my younger son, this is what he said. He said, I don't have a yard site candle, but I have this Ruth Bader Ginsburg candle that someone at some point sent me. And I said, I, I shouldn't be doing television on Chag. And he said, do you want me to tell you what you want to hear? Or you want to hear what Justice Ginsburg would tell you? Because she would tell you, like, get out there and amplify, like, people are in grief. So it's it's more than anything else, I feel that the problem with doing five, six podcast TV hit, radio hits, and speeches a day is you don't have time to go inside. Yeah. And so I'm largely feeling even more bereft of the Chagim than... I would have if I hadn't. Does that make any sense? It does. I mean, for better or worse, you know, Rosh Hashanah is characterized as Yom Hadin, the day of judgment, and in some ways, the day of justice. So you're right. And I think we want our holidays to be a respite. I think also, I had this weird feeling of, okay, 2020 has been, you know, a flaming dumpster of apocalyptic hellscape. So we just have to get through 2020. But like, maybe if we get rid of 5780, was it? <laughs> that like, for the Jews, the new year will actually start um, today, and then Ginsburg passing away, 
means that actually Rosh Hashanah is like the catalyst of something totally different. And personally, I actually didn't find out that she passed away until around lunchtime of the first day of Rosh Hashanah. And I don't know whether that's better or worse. It meant I had one Rosh Hashanah morning just being in the prayer and in lunch and with apples and honey without having to then spend the rest of the holiday also not on screens and not not parsing what this was, but just kind of sitting in the house and worrying. The other thing that I think is interesting, Yehuda, because I've been really mindful of how different it is from when Justice Scalia died in February of 2016, is that we all took a beat. Like we really took a beat on both sides to think about his legacy, his doctrinal legacy, what he had meant. This time, like by the time you were finding out at lunch, I was already long past talking about her doctrine, her jurisprudence, you know, her radical, radical program as an advocate. We were just strapping on the weapons of war to have a fight about this next seat. And in some ways, and this is going to sound gendered, I don't mean it to, but just the act of erasure around the legacy, the really, whatever your ideology, the legacy of a person who kind of single-handedly constructed equal protection doctrine for women in this country. It's really hard to have that also taken away because I think in the bloodlust to, you know, figure out what's going to happen with this seat and and what, how this is going to inflect on the election, we have just done further violence to this, the person who would most hate, not just being erased, but being erased in, you know, advancing this knockdown, drag out civil war, yeah. take no prisoners, she would have hated that more than anything else. Right. And you kind of don't have a choice but to engage in that, because if you're going to stop and think about legacy right now, I'll tell you who's not is Mitch McConnell. So if you don't do that, you're not keeping pace. So let's spend a little bit of time today talking about that legacy and reflecting on Justice Ginsburg, both in terms of her judicial legacy, but also in terms of the image that she kind of represents in Jewish history. And by the way, Dahlia, I'd love your take on this. I I felt that some of the commentary about, well, she should have resigned in 2013 in a a previous bout of cancer, as though there wouldn't have been a contentious nomination then. Um, I've also felt that that's gendered, that that demands that a Supreme Court justice resign because of her health for political reasons. I, I don't remember, maybe I'm wrong, that assumption being made about any other Supreme Court justice ever. So it just, it struck me as being at least faintly misogynistic of why weren't you getting out of the way? You think I'm right about that? Not only do I think you're right about that, she thought you were right about that. I mean, she really took it when largely male law professors started writing those op-eds in that time period. She took it as bullying. And she also was like, nobody's telling John Paul Stevens to retire. You know, he's older than me. Nobody's telling Steve Breyer to retire. He's just a few years younger than me. And I think not only did she take it as misogynistic, but she also really was mindful of like, and this is just in the weeds history, but, you know, Sandra Day O'Connor, when she was ready to retire, she was going to step off the court. She went to William Rehnquist, who was chief then. She said, I'm going to step down. My husband, John, is very, very sick. I'm going to step down one year from now to take care of him. Rehnquist said he was dying of thyroid cancer. He said, no, you step down now. You go now. I'm going to step down in a year. We can't have two vacancies in a year. 
She stepped down early before she was ready. He promptly died, so there were those two vacancies. Had she waited a year, Yehuda, her husband was already institutionalized. She could have stayed on the court for several years. That story became another story of a woman getting bullied off the court by a man, in Ginsburg's mind, I think. And so she was really, I think at that point, not just integrating, now I'm the only woman on the court. You know, like now I'm single-handedly representing. Sandy got bullied off before she was ready to go by William Rehnquist, who was not realistic about his own health situation. So like, no. And I think she really took all that in the aggregate as deeply sexist. And I think the last thing I would just say on this, I know this debate is raging. My own feeling is... All of us who wanted her to step down, anybody who wanted her to step down, just needs to remember that we walked into that 2016 election with one vacancy, three octogenarians on the left, and Democrats didn't vote, didn't care about the court, didn't show up, didn't message the court, didn't privilege the court. Nobody said the words Merrick Garland during that campaign. And I think her feeling was, you didn't step up. That's not my fault for not stepping down. And I I don't think that's entirely wrong. Yeah. So let's stay on the piece of that thread for a second. One of the things that strikes me as part of the judicial legacy of Ginsburg is, especially the last number of years on the court, kind of being the representative of the dissenter and constituting the image of the dissenter. Of course, it has iconography associated with it in terms of the collars. I get the impression, I didn't know her personally, you did, that she embraced the posture of the dissenter. And in one particular example, which we'll spend a little more time on, the Ledbetter example, the dissent goes from being the symbolic opposition to actually being the stuff that constitutes the American policy. But it strikes me as something very perverse about the leading feminist in the history of the court also being the dissenter, that it can't even be the vanguard. It actually has to be a dissenting position. So I'm curious how you think about that identity. Is it right to understand Ginsburg through the legacy of dissent? And what story is it telling about justice and progress to see Ginsburg inhabit those two identities? I mean, the first thing I would say is that it was also very Jewish, and I think she knew it was very Jewish. I think she really lashed herself to a lot of the ways in which there's something very Jewish about privileging dissent and taking it very seriously. And I think that mattered to her. I did an event with Moshe Halbertal where he talked a lot about the role of dissent in our bones and uh, how we make space for it. And I think that mattered to her. I think that what you're grappling with is actually, in my view, the paradox of Justice Ginsburg, who spent her entire career as a litigator, as a professor, then as a circuit court judge on the D.C. Circuit, and most of her career on the Supreme Court, not that. You know, she was a get-along incrementalist. She was famous. Every one of her top 10 quotes is about, you know, make change, but bring people along. You know, don't make enemies. She always quoted her mother-in-law's marital advice. Be a little bit deaf. You know, like, don't. (laughs) And she really, like, all of that was how she lived her life. She was not about taking a torch to the other side. She was about trying to pick off in any way she could that one ally and never burning a bridge. And that's how she did everything. And so the idea that the iconic RBG, you know, when she becomes famous for Shelby County for that descent, and then, you know, she turns into the notorious RBG and she is this iconic 
flame-throwing dissenter sits really uneasily next to her actual temperament because she didn't have that option. And I think, you know, two things are interesting. One is, would she have been like that had she been able to? In other words, if when she joins the ACLU and becomes the head of their women's rights project, if she could have been a flame-throwing, screaming, would she have? I'm not sure she would have. I think by temperament, you know, she always quoted her mother. Her mother said, be a lady. And her be a lady, in her view, meant have no strong emotions. Like, don't waste your time with pointless emotions. And so I just think she would never have been that way, even if the legal moment would have allowed for her to be that way. And then the other question is, did she change? And, you know, Jeff Rosen has asked her this. Many people have asked her. She really feels that it wasn't that I became this angry, crazy, passionate dissenter. It's just that the court moved around me. And her view of it is like, they changed. I stayed the same. And the court did, in fact, swing, you know, wildly around her in her tenure there. And I think that what started to happen even before she kind of got the moniker Notorious RBG and before the dissent callers and all the hagiography around her as a dissenter is that I think she stopped talking to the court and started really talking to young women. And she saw her time horizon kind of collapse in on itself. And she felt, which is also a very, very Jewish idea, like I'm using my dissent not for this moment, but to talk to the future. And she really thought that she was writing for the young women who were going to law school who were going to change everything. And that's kind of what Lily Ledbetter was. It was writing for the future. And so I think part of what my sense is, if you read even the craft of her writing changes when she becomes a dissenter in that time period, she stops quoting other people. She starts writing in her own voice. She starts some of those great expressions, the Shelby County dissent, you know, putting away the Voting Rights Act because it's finally working is like putting away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. Like that's her. That's not her quoting someone. So I think so many pieces of things change. And a big part of it is that she just inhabits her own voice now. She's not quoting anyone. And another part is this is how she's talking to the young 21-year-old women because her work is not going to get done in her lifetime. She really thought it was. And now she's just talking to them. And I think all of those things sit kind of uncomfortably with this role of a flaming dissenter, but not really if you sort of watch the trajectory of her life. Yeah, not really. Also, because it seems like not a coincidence then that over the past 10 years, she becomes a more outspoken in Jewish communal contexts. There's a kind of a holistic integration that's taking place. Even the language of speaking to the future, recognizing that, especially if you're an incrementalist, that the best you're going to be able to do is get people to the next generation. You can quote all sorts of sources on carob trees. I planned for this generation that comes next. So there's something that does feel very Jewish about that. And, you know, the other Jewish text that I've been thinking a lot in thinking about Justice Ginsburg is in the Mishnah in Eduyod in the tractate on testimonials. It talks about why does the Mishnah preserve the positions of the losing side? And in that case, it's actually both Hillel and Shammai who notoriously fight against each other, but sometimes neither of them is right. And it says, we preserve that so that later courts might be able to rely on the precedent of the voices that come before. So there does seem to be a kind of almost like a circulatory system between the posture of being an incrementalist and building towards the future and recognizing that sometimes that very posture of building towards the future can be best expressed 
through holding fast to a dissenting position, as opposed to just trying to go along with some small pace of change in this process. I love that. And I also love, it actually answers for me, you know, one of the biggest surprises in covering Justice Ginsburg for the last 20 years was when in the 2016 election, she becomes the only justice who speaks out during the campaign against Donald Trump. And initially I thought, what was that? That's not like her. And then she gives that same interview with almost verbatim the same critiques of him three, four times, at which point it's clear she, and I could never understand it. It was so not like her. And then I think it was Erwin Chemerinsky, who's the dean at Bolt now, who's the dean at UC Irvine then. We were talking about it and he said, you forget, we all forget that she came of age where like Holocaust refugees were being settled in Brooklyn around her. Like this is what she saw. And if you read like even the early things she wrote in like high school and junior high, she was really in a very Jewish way between the Holocaust and the Red Scare that also really informed how she thought about tyranny and totalitarianism and authoritarianism. That stuff shaped her Jewish self in a deep way. And at least at the time, Dean Chemerinsky said to me, you can't unbraid her need to like for the only time speak out in a really inappropriate and intemperate way about Donald Trump from her Jewishness, that it was like a warning shot. And by the way, I wrote very critically that she should not have done that. But I think that for her, like that was chiming in a key that she remembered that most of us have forgotten. And I do, almost in hindsight this week, I've been very, when I regret things I've written about her, I I regret criticizing her for that because I think she thought about the Holocaust in ways that I don't understand. Yeah. And also in retrospect, she's the one person on record of the court (laughs) of signaling. I know that the etiquette is that I'm supposed to sit this out and watch from the sidelines and just sit quietly at the city union. But in retrospect, it would seem insane that like the greatest feminist and the first Jewish woman on the court has to actually watch a Trump election and pretend that it's irrelevant, uh, pretend that those characteristics are morally irrelevant. You know, I think about pluralism a lot and all these pieces connect to questions of pluralism, including how do you dissent against a system in a way that actually promotes the pluralism of that system because it's not going along with the hegemony of certain ideas. But one of the things that's the real sticker, I think, in our contemporary polarization piece is the whole weird element of her friendship with Scalia. Now, I don't know if you want to unpack that psychologically, probably not, but I'd like to just as observers of this, this is becoming a harder thing for most Americans to be able to do, where you would really have close friendships with people of significant political difference, political enemies. I have a few left, and the only way we survive is that I don't read their Twitter feeds anymore, and I don't talk politics with them at all. But I can't imagine if my whole job was to be like their political sparring partner. And if I felt, if I was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that Scalia represented everything (laughs) that I was trying to fight against. Like, how do you make sense of that? And do you? I mean, I think the single most important thing, I remember saying this in every interview after Scalia died too, is it was legit, that it wasn't like a dog and pony show, that they trotted out to make some point about being friends across ideological lines. There's like a famous photo of the two of them on the back of an elephant in India when they're traveling together. And, you know, it's just, that would be a long way to go to stage something to make a point. Like they really adored each other. 
And I asked him about it. He said she was just the smartest person I knew. I asked her about it, and she said he made me laugh. And it's, again, I'm sorry to reduce everything to Judaism, but I think her marriage to Marty, her relationship with Scalia, like, she thought they were hilarious. And she forgave a multitude of things because they were hilarious. And I just think that's so funny because, like, I think I've told you this before, like, the rule in our house is it's allowed if it's funny. Like, funny, you know, trumps everything, too much to my, like, chagrin as my kids get older. But I just think, I mean, I think this goes back to the stuff I said at the beginning, which is, like, her entirety of her legal career involved swallowing insult after insult after insult in order to creep toward something that was transactionally worth it for her. And, you know, I'll tell you, I think it's maybe orthogonal, but maybe answers the question. You know, I interviewed her in January and I got an hour with her. And the thing I was pressing on was, Dean Irwin Griswold at Harvard Law School. It's 1956. There's nine women in your class. There's 500 and some men. And every one of the women he makes stand up and announce why they're taking a spot from a man. Like, that sucks. Like, that's just awful. And it's on record. And we interviewed the other women in her class. And she twisted herself in a pretzel to make it sound like he was an ally. Like she was like, no, I think he was joking. He didn't have a great sense of humor, says the woman who doesn't laugh. He didn't have a great sense of humor, but I think it was a joke. And you need to understand he fought so hard to bring women to heart. Like she reread that entire story to me so that instead of Dean Griswold publicly belittling the nine women that started in 1956, like he was their hero and their ally. And it's either like wicked Patty Hearst syndrome, like, you know, you're just in love with your captor, or I think more authentically, she just took what she could get. And if your ally presents as Antonin Scalia, he's your ally. And she would talk about Chief Justice Rehnquist with such reverence. And you would want to say, like, have you read this? Like, have you read the Scalia opinion where he trashes Sandra Day O'Connor and says, like, what she's written is, quote, not to be believed? Like, it's awful. And I think that the answer is, and it goes partly to this be a little bit deaf thing and, you know, just don't burn bridges thing. But I think her view of pluralism and even the very transactional view of how we get things done is just tune it out. It's not worth it. And she thought all of that stuff was noise. What mattered is what we can get done together. And just the last thing I'm going to say, because I feel like you don't believe me, but the last thing I'm going to say is like when she was on the D.C. Circuit, right, the most powerful appellate court in the country, her record aligned more closely with Scalia and Robert Bork than the liberals on that court. Like she is a small C conservative. And she just made space for a lot of people that you and I would have no patience for. She just saw whether it was the good in them or the funny in them or just that they were of utility to her. She just didn't burn stuff down. She didn't do it. Yeah. It's not that I don't believe you. I think there's two things you're saying in there that are especially critical. One is the last point about being small C conservative. I think she is far more of a liberal than a progressive. And I think the confusion for progressives has been the collapsing of those two categories in the last 20 years. And the ability to say, how can I as a progressive identify that a liberal is broadly part of my team, even though they're not going to do things in the world the way I like it. I think the other piece is, I'm not sure we'll be able to excavate of Scalia's record and find the Ginsburg influence. 
it's pretty good about holding that back. But we may ultimately be able to find a Ginsburg influence on Roberts, right? There are other justices for whom that pluralism or that ideological mobility between the hard right and the hard left is going to actually disclose itself, whether that becomes relevant in a 6-3 court. Hi, I'm Claire Suprin. And if you're listening to Identity Crisis, you're probably curious about the major ideas and debates of the day affecting Jews in America. So I have great news for you. I'm the co-editor with Yehuda Kurtzer of The New Jewish Canon, a book that's out this summer. You can find out more about it at newjewishcanon.com. In this book, we've gathered all Jewish ideas that were expressed between 1980 and 2015. Well, maybe not quite everything, but it contains major texts and debates that were vitally important to the American Jewish community, along with a series of reflective essays by today's thinkers that explain the debates and their importance. Read about it and how to buy it at newjewishcanon.com. Can I tell my favorite story? Yeah, go for it. This is my favorite story. She told it so well. I can't tell it as well. I've heard her tell it many times. Towards the end of his career, then Chief Justice Rehnquist is writing the majority opinion in what becomes the seminal Family Medical Leave Act case, where he is actually saying, okay, the Family Medical Leave Act is a good thing. This is not a position anyone expects him to take. It turns out, as she tells it, that as he's writing this opinion, his daughter, newly divorced, has little kids, and his daughter's doing the juggle. And suddenly he's like, oh, my God, you know, this it's really hard to be a caregiver for children, and you're working, and it's all... and." All of that somehow leeches into the opinion. And the way she told the story, which I love, is that like when Marty's reading the draft opinion, he yells like, Ruthie, did you write this for him? And she tells the story because I think she always felt, and the same, by the way, of Justice Kennedy, who she really brought over. I think it's fair to say, you know, he had written this awful majority opinion in the so-called partial birth abortion case where he's like, oh, poor little women, they make bad decisions. They need us to help them. They're going to regret their abort. Like, they're just so, so broken inside. And she went crazy and wrote something intemperate in the dissent. But he flips in Whole Women's Health and he votes with the liberals again. And I think that it is clear, and this is her story over and over again. It's why she defends Erwin Griswold. It's why she defends Justice Scalia. It's why she defends Chief Justice Rehnquist. Is She just thinks there is a way of thinking about the world. And you don't know what you don't know. And my job is to tell you what you don't know and bring you along. And if you think about it, all of the work she did at the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU in the 70s, all those like six cases that she argued at the Supreme Court as an advocate were about telling a bunch of men, (laughs) you don't know what you don't know. Let me tell you. I'm going to tell you, by the way, by finding a male plaintiff, because you don't give a damn about female plaintiffs. I'm going to find this string of male plaintiffs who are disadvantaged by sex discrimination built into the law, and they want to care for their mothers and care for their sons and be the beneficiaries of their working wife's plans. It's the same impulse. It's just the advocate's impulse to say, I think I can persuade you, and I think I can change your mind. And like I always say, she really believed that a woman's view of the law was like contagious and men could catch it. And <laughs> it was her job to sort of sneeze on them until they got it. And she just talked in those terms. I shouldn't say that in the era of COVID, I guess, but like she really thought that that's how you do the work. And I started by saying like that seems like such a disempowered position. Yeah. And in some sense it was. But I think she just didn't ever give up on the possibility 
And you're right, this is not a progressive value necessarily. It feels something else. But she just wouldn't give up on the possibility that if she just made it clear to you that you don't know what you don't know, you will come along. Yeah, David Hartman has a piece in an essay on pluralism where he admits basically that part of the reason he builds pluralistic spaces, turns creates a pluralistic institution in Jerusalem is because there's no way he can convince other people that his way of thinking is right unless he talks to them. And he admits, right, once you create that space, there's opens up a possibility that you're wrong and you're going to be influenced also. And that's where being a little bit deaf actually really helps because then you're there and you're putting on a smiling face, but your your whole business is to be able to actually create influence. So what if you made, I really have not known what to make of the very, very mostly annoying Jewish conversation about the Jewish aspects of the Ginsburg funeral and about her legacy also. There was this big, I thought, very silly kerfuffle about Jews say we're supposed to bury somebody quickly, but she's allowing herself to lie in state when I remember going to the Rabin funeral and waiting in line for three hours in Israel because he lay in state and she's not the first Jew to do this. So there's certainly precedent. And the other was this video that went viral of two rabbis who probably were trying to figure out what to do You know, if you're a rabbi coming up to Rosh Hashanah and you've written all your sermons and then the night of Rosh Hashanah, Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies, you got to do something. And so there were a couple of rabbis who chanted some of her key lines to the Haftarah trope. And then that created its own like silly kerfuffle. The larger story here is I think a lot of American Jews are looking at this moment and trying to figure out it wasn't just that she was incidentally Jewish, that she actually is a important American Jew. And we're trying to kind of process what it means to have symbolic exemplars of American Jews who are not rabbis and who are not functioning as Jewish thinkers. So what do you make of the noise around Ginsburg's Jewishness? And what should we be looking for and listening for as we try to make sense of this as an American Jewish story? My starting point, quite frankly, is that I think we failed to apprehend how extraordinary it was that without fuss or quibble Of course she was going to lie in state, you know, in both the court and in the Capitol. Like, can you imagine, like, Louis Brandeis or Felix Frankfurter? Like, we've come a long way, baby. Iconic Jewish Supreme Court justices were always seen as fringe, you know? (laughs) Like, even when they were Brandeis. She's not fringe. I think that the collective understanding, and I think when you talk about, you know, how deeply Jewish the memorial service was. And by the way, John Roberts telling this like great story, which she always told, like, what's the difference between a bookkeeper and, you know, Supreme Court justice in America, one generation, like that was a Ginsburg Jewish joke. That was her, you know, she always told that. I feel like the fact that we just simply integrated, of course, she was profoundly Jewish. She lived her life that way. And that that's going to be how she is publicly remembered. That's a pretty radical change. And so my first thought was, it's ironic and interesting to me at a time, and you and I have talked about Charlottesville a thousand times, but I'm more uneasy being publicly Jewish in America than I've ever been in my life, that this just happened and nobody said boo. Like that's quite an amazing paradox that I have not seen unpacked to my satisfaction. We all just accepted this is how it's going to be. So that's one thing. I think also, and I've been thinking about this a lot, you almost couldn't see a a remembrance of her in even the secular press that didn't talk about like Tzedek Tzedek Tirdof, you know, framed in her. Tikkun Olam comes up 
all the time because she talked about it all the time. Like these Jewish notions got so braided into even before the funeral, the way we talked about her. And that's also surprising, right? Because again, Brandeis was a really Jewy Jew and like self-identified as such. I don't think it was just as comfortable to sort of travel between the two worlds the way it is now. So that's interesting to me. Yeah, it's interesting. And I would say, I think the one place where I see that there's a little bit of a category error, and I think I think I read something by Rafi McGarrick, who's a, a doctoral student at Berkeley, who pointed this out. The instinct by some Jews and non-Jews to try to figure out what category of Jewish leaders she fits into, and all people seem to have is profit. That's the problem with Haftorah chanting, is profit. <laughs> and I just want to correct the record. I misattributed Rafi McGarrick is professor at University of Illinois, Chicago. Apologies, Professor uh, McGarrick, for that. And what his argument was, was nobody who's an agent of the state serves as a prophet. The definition of a prophet is that they are outside the system. And by the way, it's interesting because that's what Roosevelt called Brandeis. Roosevelt referred to Brandeis as old Isaiah, because that's what you would say, like, what's a Jewish sage from the perspective of a Christian? It must be a prophet. I think you're right to note that, like, it's amazing that her Jewishness is actually not only a source of pride, but in some ways not a big deal. But I think there still is a little bit of a category for American Jews of figuring out what does it mean to have someone who's so Jewish, part of the public square, not representing the Jews, and also embodying a kind of confusing Jewishness, which is what Jews have and do. just doesn't really fit into any kind of neat boxes. I just want to also, here's one other thought on this, which is, You know, I read a whole bunch, you know, Ginsburg left behind religious observance because of women not counting in a minion. And I read that and the critics use that as like, look, she wasn't so serious as a Jew. And I read that story and I was like, that's the Jewishest thing of all time. Leaving a minion because of gender and exerting that as a protest, that's a Jewish thing to do. People don't do that because they're rejecting Judaism. People are doing that actually because they're taking the Judaism quite seriously. Can I read something to you? Yeah, please. In 2014, she explained why she assigned. Do you remember that town of Greece case, which was about you're having town council meetings and they're being solemnized with a prayer and in the town of Greece, they kept doing (laughs) Christian sectarian prayers and this goes all the way to the Supreme Court and the court says it's fine and Elena Kagan writes what is really like an extraordinary dissent from Justice Kagan, who's fairly new to the court. And Ginsburg, who assigned the opinion, right, that's the benefit of being a senior justice in the dissent, is you pick who writes what. I love this quote because it exactly maps onto what you just said, Yehuda. She explains why she gave that dissent to Elena Kagan, quote, she was an outsider, even in her own religion, in that she had to fight to be the first girl bat mitzvah in her orthodox synagogue. I think she has that sensitivity. It's something my colleagues really don't get because they haven't been in that situation. So it's like not only is she the quintessential Jew, who like leaves Judaism because they won't let her say Kaddish for her mom. But then she turns around and gives one of the most important like church state dissents to Elena Kagan because she's like, they did it to her too. (laughs) You know, it's so like interesting kind of paying forward the extremely Jewish, like these guys don't get, they don't get it. So I love that. (laughs) Yeah. And also, you know, like, the overwhelming majority of American Jews don't participate in synagogue life. And we still sometimes have the categories of authenticity that simply don't make sense descriptive 
descriptively of who American Jews actually are. And in so many ways, the, the ways in which she dissents from her own tradition, the way she embraces her own tradition, seems so laced with her Jewishness. Uh, last question going forward. There's a lot we can talk about politically, but I'm really grateful to have a conversation here about some of the larger Jewish and moral questions raised by Justice Ginsburg's career and life. Our audiences are not going to hear this before Yom Kippur, but certainly many rabbis out there are thinking about how to continue to integrate Justice Ginsburg's life's lessons, teachings into thinking forward for a Jewish year where questions of justice are at the front line of what it means to be Jewish in America. I'd love to get some wisdom for you going forward, advice uh, for the teachers, the educators, the rabbis out there. What else do we take? What are the last ideas we take from Ginsburg's legacy, especially as we confront an American context where the politics of incrementalism feel harder and harder to glom onto, where many of us feel that that story, that post-Cold War story, is just not what needs to happen to turn this place around. So what do you want to take from, from Ginsburg's legacy to help animate and motivate our thinking going forward? So I did write a piece for the Jewish Women's Archive where I tried to say that I think one animating value in Justice Ginsburg's life was that she was always an outsider, always about everything, right? She was brilliant. She used to read in the bathroom at school so that people wouldn't catch her reading. She was a cheerleader so that she could prove that she was like a real girl, always remembered driving around in the back of her car and seeing signs that said, no Jews, no dogs, like that really affected her. She always, I think, lived this double life where she both felt entitled to be part of the American dream and shut out of it. And then she would claw her way into one thing, whether it was Harvard Law School or whether it was the ACLU or whether it was like she would have to fight to be in. And I think when I look back at her jurisprudence on voting rights and disability rights and, you know, she made some huge mistakes. She had wicked blind spots. She hired, I think, two African-American clerks in her entire career. She was knocking Colin Kaepernick for what he was doing. Like, let's stipulate she wasn't perfect. But I think she just had a deep and evolving sensibility about what it is to be an outsider in America and I think that that helped her even integrate things that she didn't understand. <laughs> like if she could say, like, look, I've never been a minority voter in Texas who's having their vote suppressed. But she could imagine, you know, I've never been a capital defendant who has not been given counsel. She just managed, I think, to, and I, again, find that quite Jewish, to be, like, not just in the, like, all the Yom Kippur liturgy of, like, helping out the unfortunate, but just that she could imagine herself into any outsider's shoes. And I think that shoots through an immense amount of her doctrine. And I think that's a useful value, especially going into Yom Kippur, but especially going into an America where we don't want to imagine anyone else's life because we only care about ours. It was never zero-sum for her. And I think that leads me to another, I think, Gordon Tucker suggested this to me the other day in a conversation, and it's, I've been sitting with it for days. But I think that one of the things, you know, I talked about how she brought all those cases, the early equal protection cases on behalf of men, right? And I was describing it like a party trick, like, oh, you know, she would snooker the courts by finding male plaintiffs so that they could empathize. And he reminded me, actually, you know, who really benefited from all those cases was the men 
who really just wanted to live a fully realized life that involved caring for their ailing mother or caring for their sick child or being a stay-at-home parent. And that, in fact, what we forget, because we see her as this trailblazer for women, is that her view of equality wasn't to lift women over men, Yehuda. It was to equalize us and to allow women to benefit from all the rights and privileges of the American legal system and also to give men <laughs> the same opportunity. And I can't quite find the Jewish hook yet, but I love the idea that and it goes a little bit to your question about whether, you know, anger was a real driver in her life or like she was faking it, that she wasn't angry. I think justice was a driver in her life. It's really different from anger. And I think her vision of justice, and I, I don't want to sound hagiographic about it, but when she would talk about some of these men that she represented in these cases, it wasn't like, ha I found a sucker who's going to like help me persuade the courts to dismantle gender inequality. She just, her heart went out to these men who wanted to do, by the way, what Marty was doing, her husband was doing, and you do, which is cook. You know, they just wanted to like think about food and help their kids with the homework and like not be the sole breadwinner. And so I think... When I try to think Jewishly about her legacy, and I'm also saying this mindful of the fact that my husband has cooked every meal because I've been, you know, on TV every freaking night, I think that there's something very beautiful about a vision of justice that lifts everyone up and that doesn't, like, say, you know, the world will be better if we take away your stuff and we get it. It was just not that. It was that, like, if we could all be fully faceted, complicated, whether it's in the religion context or whether it's in the voting context or in the gender context, that she was trying to help us all be more. I don't know if that is getting me anywhere, Yehuda, but I think it's... Yeah, I think the holistic for story me, is the one a that very, I've been like, grasping for also. And it feels quite personal also. I, to, to put you know, my father was a together. U.S. public servant for 30 years, a U.S. ambassador. And some of the key moments that I remember in my life, like transformative was, you know, his swearing in ceremony as a Jew and as an American. And it was always easy for the critics to say, well, if you make this commitment, you take away from that commitment. Because, you know, critics like to dismantle holistic identities and turn them into competitive with one another. But one of the things I kept coming back to this week in reflecting on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life and legacy was how inseparable those aspects of her identity very much were, whether in the pursuit of justice and equality for everyone or even in the construction of her own identity. So I'm endlessly grateful to Dahlia Lithwick for being with us this week. This is the first time that a guest on our show has also been on Trevor Noah's show, so that's a breakthrough for identity crisis. So thank you, Dahlia, for being with us this week. And thank you to all of you for listening. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced this week by David C. Kalman and edited by Alex Dillon. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman with music provided by SoCalled. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online, shalomhartman.org. We'd love to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people discover it. You can also write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Thanks for listening.